And we're going to be covering the first 14 verses of the chapter. Jerry, could you uh, open us with a word of prayer, and then we will set the stage for what we're talking about? Yes, sir. love to. Gracious Father, what a great uh, joy it is to uh, open up your word. Lord, I'm so thankful for uh, each of these uh, here tonight. Invested in your people and your word, there's the two things that really matter for eternity. And Lord, we would ask today that you would give us uh, a, a deeper desire to pray. And to pray um, in a similar way that, that Paul prayed, um, a biblical way. Lord, I'm so convicted by this passage. I pray that you would use this passage to both encourage and convict us. And I'm thankful, very thankful tonight for, uh, for Mark and Scott and uh, Greg and the insights and the wisdom and the friendship and the uh, uh, joy it is to be together um, with our church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hmm. All right. Well, it's sure um, great to be with you all tonight. And I really am thankful that you have uh, joined us in uh, investing in things that really matter. God's people and God's word. And Colossians, fantastic book. Wouldn't you say maybe Paul's masterpiece on Jesus? Would that be a... Uh, a way to introduce it is like, and not that he, Paul's always writing about the Lord Jesus, but in this book, uh, his supremacy is um, just over and over and over and over throughout the book. We'll see joy maybe eight times in this book. If you come eight times, you might see it every, every uh, Thursday. So get ready to be joyful. And um, this is a, a, going to be just a, a fantastic study. Mark, could you kind of introduce us to this book? Usually I like about 30 seconds of this before we get right to the uh, meat of the matter, right to what the Lord says. But this probably requires more, more than 30 seconds here in the introduction. Yeah, let, let me take a moment here. So hold, hold your spot in Colossians and turn to Acts chapter 19. And if you've been coming here for a while, you, you would have heard a sermon on this passage a number of months ago, but let me refresh you uh, in case it could be hard to remember. And so Acts chapter 19... Okay, I know all of our, our geographical knowledge may be, may be better with some and worse with others, but if you know where modern-day Turkey is that we've talked a lot about today, on the very edge of Turkey, you have Ephesus, and you have all those churches that the Revelation was written to, those seven churches, uh, Smyrna and Laodicea and Philadelphia, all those churches in that area. And you've got Ephesus right there on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea, and Ephesus was a major city at the time. Uh, it, was, it was a major place. So people would come from all over to go to Ephesus, and it was a major trading place, and they also sold, you know, little temples to the god uh, Diana or Artemis. And so Paul carries on a ministry there. Let me stretch your memory here. Some of you may remember, we talked about Paul preaching the Bible. He, he preached the Bible 3,000 hours worth in the course of two years while he was in Ephesus because he got to lecture in the Hall of Tyrannus. Uh, every day for maybe about five hours a day for two years. And so we're talking uh, 3,000 hours of Bible teaching, and Paul's just sort of camped out at home base in Ephesus. And as he's preaching, we're told that all of Asia, which is what you think of as Turkey today, right? Asia, Turkey, same basic thing if you flip between the time periods. So what modern-day Turkey is, what's being described as Asia, all of Asia heard the word of the Lord which means Paul was sort of home base, and he was sending people out from Ephesus, and they were going to all these cities that you hear about in Revelation, like Smyrna and Laodicea and Thyatira. All these churches were being planted, and most of them, if all of them, were not being planted by Paul. They were being planted by people 
converted under Paul in Ephesus and discipled by Paul briefly in Ephesus and then sent out to plant back in their home churches where they had come from. So look at Acts 19. You remember he always starts in the synagogue when he gets to Ephesus, verse 8, Acts 19, verse 8. And he, Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, do you hear it? Paul's at home base, two years, teaching the Bible about maybe five hours a day, around the clock, and people come to Ephesus, like I mentioned before. If you live in Athens, at some point you go to Atlanta. If you live in Atlanta, you may never go to Athens, right? That's the way. So think of Ephesus as Atlanta, and the other cities as like Athens and other lesser cities, as, you know, as far as scale and size around the area. And people are flocking to Ephesus for trade and business, and when they get there, sometimes they hear about this crazy guy, Paul who's preaching like crazy in this hall of Tyrannus. And they would come in to hear him speak. It was obviously a free thing. You just go in and listen. And people were captivated. Many people were converted during this time, and they were led to faith in Christ. Turn with me uh, to, back to Colossians chapter 1. As you turn back there, let me remind you of a verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Paul says this. So while he's in Ephesus, he writes 1 Corinthians. Okay, so during these two years, he writes 1 Corinthians, and in that letter, he says, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why? For a wide door for effective work has opened for me, and there are many adversaries. Mm -hmm. So Paul is seeing much fruit and much opposition, which is what we always see, right? If you're faithful to Christ, you're going to see fruitfulness, Lord willing, and you're also going to see opposition. These things are inevitable. They're going to come together. But one of the great pieces of fruit that Paul got to see here, look at Colossians chapter 1. He mentions right out of the gate of the letter a man named Epaphras. Look at, um, look at verse, uh, we'll start at verse 3. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from, not me, from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Now look at chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, that's the Colossians, and for those at Laodicea, that's just about 10 miles from Colossae, and for all those who have not seen me, what? Face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged. You know what we're hearing? Paul has never met most of the Colossian Christians. Why? Because Paul has probably never been to Colossae before. His disciple, his convert, Epaphras, is the one who heard Paul preach in Ephesus during those two years at the Hall of Tyrannus. No doubt Epaphras came in for maybe business or some other reason. He hears Paul. He's convicted. He's converted. He then begins to grow like crazy under Paul. And what does Paul do? He sends him back home to where he's from. Look at uh, chapter 4 of Colossians. Chapter 4, verse 12, we get a little bit more information about Epaphras. 
Colossians 4.12, Epaphras, who is one of you. He's a native Colossian. In other words, he had left Colossae, been converted, and gone back home uh, to preach, to present the gospel to people he knew. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness, listen to this, that he has worked hard for you, that's the Colossians, and for those in Laodicea, 10 miles away, and in Hierapolis, also about 10 miles away. Now just pause here. If you look at a map, you've got Ephesus here on the edge of Turkey. Ephesus is here, right on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea. If you go inland about 120 miles down a, a, a wonderfully named river, the Meander River. Okay, it's just meanders, okay? So you, you go 120 miles up the Meander River, and you end up around three different cities. Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis, all within 10 miles of each other, 120 miles upstream from Ephesus. Paul had never been there. He had, a man had been converted. He'd gone back up the Meander River, back to his hometown, and he had apparently been used by the Lord to plant the church in his hometown Colossae. Then in the neighboring city of Laodicea, the, the church we know from Revelation was probably planted by this guy Epaphras. He was a very busy young Christian. And then right next door to that, there's also the church at, um, what's the other one called? Uh, uh, Hierapolis. So th those are all in the same area. So what, what we're seeing here, and I want to get you guys' thoughts on this, how the Lord uses Paul when he's 120 miles away from all this stuff that's going on. Paul's never even been there, but yet Paul is indirectly reaping tremendous results in his ministry just down the way through his disciples. So some ways we can apply this opening thought here. Well, I'll give one, one thought on this, um, at least one. It's, it's obvious that the Lord's work does not depend on one person. Mm -hmm. I mean, Paul obviously was making disciples, but if we're doing that right, the disciples we're making should be able to go and multiply uh, the work. They should be able to go share the gospel, lead people to Christ, start a church, that kind of stuff. So, I mean, I think um, it, this encourages us in, in training and seeking to help our church, everyone, be as mature as possible uh, so that we don't fall into the mindset, which so many are, 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 have fallen into and it's so easy to fall into it that says the pastors are the ones who do all the work. Um, no, we all do the work. And if we're doing our job, we're helping you do the work God's called you to do so that you don't need us looking over your shoulder every time you go to share the gospel. Did I do that right? Because you know the gospel. You, you live the gospel. You breathe the gospel. Um, and Paul was doing that. And so Epaphras is, a, I think, a clear example of, you know, doing discipleship rightly. He was able to go start a church. Paul, Paul's not sitting there questioning whether or not it's a legit church. Mm -hmm. He knows it's a real church because Epaphras was trained, discipled, and sent out. Yeah, well, one of the things I would say, I mean, I, I had a study, I studied this like five years ago, the book of Colossians, and Epaphras is a guy that jumped out to me. It's a guy that I've read this, I don't know how many times I've read the letter of Colossians and never would have thought about Epaphras that deeply. But then when you, it's, it's, a, it's just an example of when you study the Bible, things, things rise up. And you, I just came to love this faithful brother. I, I'm drawn to people like this already in church history. I, you think of church history, you think of a guy like D.L. Moody, almost everybody in this room would know D.L. Moody, but then how many people can name the guy, the faithful Sunday school teacher who went and shared the gospel with him? Maybe a handful. Edward Kimball was his name. Just felt a burden for his soul and went to him. I just love people like that. I love the guy who converted Spurgeon. Uh, we don't, none, none of us can name him. Just this faithful guy. A lay preacher gets up and preaches for 10 or, to 12, 10 or 12 people. Spurgeon's converted. And what I would say about Epaphras is he's a faithful brother. We, he's mentioned three times in the Bible. You, you've mentioned the two of them. He's mentioned in Philemon as a, a fellow prisoner with Christ. We know he's in prison. He's planted these churches. But you mentioned that the ripple effect 
uh, of, uh, that our lives can have on others by God's grace? You think Paul sharing the gospel with Epaphras, then who would have imagined all these churches would, would have been formed? And I think we can be inspired. Paul is so gifted that we can feel intimidated by Paul. But Epaphras is a faithful brother that we can learn and, and be inspired by him. And I'm just share a quick story on this. This is, this is dangerous because I'm going to talk about my dad's conversion, but I'm going to try to go quick because I don't want to go down that road too far. But if you don't know his conversion, you can talk to him afterwards and, and he can give it to you better than I can, but I'll give it to you in a, in a condensed form. He didn't grow up in a Christian home, went to the Navy and uh, was converted with a faithful janitor named Joe, faithful to share the gospel with him. Uh, even though Joe, recent convert basically, shares the gospel with him over, the, over a period of, of weeks, months. And my dad eventually, he invited him to all these uh, gospel presentations, and over a long time, God is working, and, and my dad is saved. Now, Joe is faithful. He's like a pastor, just faithfully sharing, sharing the gospel, and Joe would never have imagined, never would have imagined the, the ripple effect that is still going from his faithfulness in that, in that one moment, and here, here's what I mean. He would never have guessed that my dad would go to Bible college, go to seminary, and get a, a doctor of ministry degree, and never would have imagined he would have been a faithful preacher, but here's the thing. If, if Joe does not share the gospel with my dad, North Avenue Church would not be here. I mean, it wouldn't be here. You say, how is that possible? Well, because my, my dad never would have met my mom. And even if he had, there's no way my mom would have gone out on a date with him as an unconverted person. Probably wouldn't have given him the time of day as an unconverted person. But there's no way he would have found his way to a small church in Georgia as an unconverted person. But here's this man faithfully shares the gospel and my dad ends up meeting my mom. So if, if you take away Joe, you take away us. We're not here. My brother's not here. This church is not here. So I just think we just want to be faithful. We want to be faithful like Epaphras. We want to be faithful to, to speak words that build up and entrust and, and our faithfulness to God and say God may use it in extraordinary ways. Let me jump in there. That's a tremendous point. This is, this is no insult to the man who shared the gospel to my dad. We have nothing but positive things to say. I hope this is an encouragement to you. He wasn't theologically brilliant. He wasn't some person who just like knew incredible amounts of information. My dad even said he sort of fumbled trying to find the book of Romans when he was, I think it was, when he was sharing the gospel with my dad. This was not some guy who like had it all figured out and he had everything lined up and he just was a, some sort of theological genius. And some, no, no, no. This was a very simple person with a Bible who led my dad down basically the Romans road, right? Of like, we've all sinned and here's what Christ has done. And, and my dad at the time didn't think that he was as sinful as the Bible said we are sinful. And so working through that took weeks and, and months and eventually my dad is convicted and led to Christ. But the Lord is, he uses the weak things of the world to shame the wise. And we can all be encouraged by the fact that that ripple effect, that, that stone that hit the water and the ripples are still going out in this room right now from that original rock, that that rock was not some incredibly naturally gifted person. That was a weak thing that God used to shame the wise. And that should be an encouragement to all of us because listen, we all feel like we don't have it figured out. We all feel like we are too weak to get things done the right way. We all feel incompetent, like we can barely figure out what we're supposed to do next. I mean, that, that is, at least that's my world. That, that's where I'm at. And so uh, I could tell you the mistakes I made in the last week in terms of scheduling and stuff. Some of you felt the impact of that. I mean, I, I, I got all kinds of issues, but I'm thankful that the Lord uses weak things to shame, to shame the wise. That's great. Scott, would you want to read one to eight and uh, we'll get busy in the passage? Sure. Colossians 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love. 
Let, let me just say here that the, the and, and Jerry, you've talked about this before. Maybe you could say something now, put you on the spot here. Uh, the, the math of the kingdom is not addition, it's, it's multiplication. Can you explain, kind of, because I think this is a picture of seeing multiplication with Epaphras rather than a simple addition. Yeah, no, absolutely. If you're just sharing the gospel evangelizing, which we all want to do, you get one, and then the next year you have two, and then three, and then four, and then five. But if you multiply in discipleship, like we're seeing here, then it's one, and then it's two, and then it's four, and then it's eight, and then it's 16, and then in 32 years, you've got the whole world discipled. And so there is an amazing thing when it's multiplication here. And I want to, and I want to come back to this verse three. I find it amazing that Paul, who's probably never met most of these people, is praying for them. Mm-hmm. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. What a great thing. I struggle in prayer so much, even to the people that I absolutely love. And Paul's praying for people that he hasn't even met. And what a great example there. Um, I think so. But yeah, absolutely. Um, the multiplication uh, method through discipleship will um, convert a lot of folks. I think looking at verses um, in 3 through 5, uh, one of the commentators made the, the comment that we kind of see the marks of a true Christian here. I mean, there's obviously more we could say. There's more Paul's going to talk about in this letter But you look at what he says when he says, you know, we thank God when we pray for you. And there's three things he mentions. It's it's a trio of words that pop up in other places as well. I think it's either 1 Thessalonians, uh, 1 Corinthians 13. Listen, he says, this is why Paul prays for the Colossians. He says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, the, the trio of faith, hope, and love. Again, you see that pop up in other places in the New Testament. Um, and, you know, at a base level, I mean, there, again, there's other things you could say depending on what needed to be said. But how do you know someone's a genuine believer? First, they have faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, that, that's kind of like the key most important thing is you have faith in Christ. But how, what else do you see as, as a confirming mark of genuine conversion, of genuine salvation? Uh, he says, the love that you have for all the saints. If you have faith in Christ, you're going to have a love for the people of God. Um, and I, you know, I'll say looking at this church, like it is so evident God's grace at work here, the love that is just constantly on display uh, amongst this, this congregation. It's, it's amazing to see and behold. Um, and so, you know, one, let me just affirm you guys in that, like the love that you have for one another is amazing. Um, and, and it's not something we should ever take for granted because I, I heard a guy recently talk about, you know, the likelihood of a church bickering over little insignificant things. And, you know, to, to this point, that has just not been the case with North Avenue. And it, and it is just something I'm profoundly thankful for. Um, there's issues in other churches that by God's grace, we haven't had to deal with. Like, we, we don't put minor, small, insignificant things like the color of the carpet or that kind of thing, you know, as a major test of fellowship and faithfulness to God. Um, and, I, you know, we praise the Lord for that. But we can see the love that you have for one another because it, it, it's deeper than just these surface level things. And then he says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And you know, of this you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. And so what produces that faith? What, what produces that love for one another. It's the hope that's in the gospel, the hope of eternal life, forgiveness of sins, 
um, you know, being with God forever, the, the fellowship we have with God, the fellowship we have with one another. Um, the gospel brings all that to us. And if, we, if we're thinking rightly, um, you know, we should constantly let our faith be fueled by the hope that God's, God's given us and our love for one another um, based on the hope that we have in the gospel. We go back to those simple, basic things. It's amazing. And we stay there like I think we're doing in this church. I think we'll only see more and more of what we've been seeing and even better. I love the way that faith and love spring from that hope. Mm -hmm. That hope, if our hope is right, if our hope is in Jesus, our hope is in eternal things. Titus says the same thing. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ for the sake of the God's elect and their knowledge of the truth with accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. And so let's make sure that our hope is always in the eternal an expectation of something that we know is going to come. And then faith and love will spring from that. And I think we see it in these two passages. One of your big emphases has been uh, focusing on eternity as long as I've known you. Can you just give us off the cuff here, like what are some ways we can get a little bit better at focusing on what is eternal rather than what's temporary? I think that's not a fun question to answer because I think it's trials, right? I think the people that focus on eternity, and someone told me that this week, going through a vicious trial, says, made me think about heaven. It's made me think about things to come. And so I think that almost all the time, our sufferings are going to produce a different kind of a uh, hope in what's to come. Because all of a sudden, then this world loses a little bit of, of its luster. And our hope is a, it's a little less tempting to hope in things down here when things down here aren't going maybe as uh, good as we thought they might have, have once gone. And so I think that's, uh, that's the quickest way to an eternal mindset. I think we need to say, I want to make sure we're clear on the use of the word hope too. We, we have to distinguish the way the Bible uses the word from the way our culture uses the word. Our culture uses the word hope and it's like, you know, something I really want to happen, but I'm not sure that it's going to. Like I wanted the Georgia Bulldogs. I hoped they win the national championship. How many times have we been let down and our hopes been destroyed? You know what I'm saying? Like that, that's not the way the Bible talks about hope. Hope in scripture is a confident expectation that something's going to happen that God has said. And so when we talk about the hope of the gospel and the hope of heaven, the hope of eternal life, this isn't, man, that sounds really good, but I'm not really sure if it's true. No, there, there is a, a firm confidence that because God said it, it's true, it's real, it either has happened or it will happen just the way he said. And the, the, the Psalms 42 and 43 go together really well. And you'll hear that refrain over and over, I think three times. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? What's the answer? Please. Hope in God, for I will again praise Him, my Savior and my God. So the author is dealing with de spiritual depression. Why are you downcast? Why are you depressed, O oh my soul? Why are you looking down? Why has your face fallen? What's the answer? Put your hope in the Lord. Put your hope in God. His salvation is what's going to bring you out of this pit at the end of the day.
Yeah, I'm just piggybacking on what, Greg, what you said. Uh, one of the guys said that faith, love, hope, that's apostolic shorthand for genuine conversion, like, like you were mm-hmm. saying. And obviously we think of faith in Christ, but then love for all the saints. That's another natural thing. And I don't want to embarrass Thomas, but Thomas Bailey shared his conversion the first time he came to our uh, book club. And Zach Petty, I think, is the first time Zach met him. And after he shared powerful conversion, Zach just felt like this immediate bond with Thomas. Like he's a brother in Christ. Like we're adopted into the same family. And that it, cre- it creates this incredible love for all the saints. I mean, it's just, you can meet... I think Manuel Ferreira talked about meeting somebody randomly when they were, he and Sarah were off somewhere and they found out they were a Christian. There was this immediate bond. I mean, that's just one of the gifts of Christianity that you are, there's this love that is created that is unique to Christianity. I mean, it's deeper than blood ties. It is an unusual thing. It's a wonderful thing that all Christians share. They have this deep love for each other. And, and just a word about, uh, another word about the word love there. There's a, again, there's a worldly definition of love right? There's, there, worldly people can say that we, I love someone or whatever. So, so we want to be very careful. The sign of a Christian is biblically defined gospel love. It's the love of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, here is a massive difference between worldly secular love and biblical Christian love, okay? So biblical Christian love is concerned genuinely about the spiritual well-being, not just the physical well-being about those we love. Of course we care about their physical needs. If, if you have a friend you love who is sick, you care about that. You pray about that. You're there. You, you, you take care of them. If someone's hungry, you, you, you feed them. You, you care about physical needs, of course. But worldly people can care about physical needs. That is not an inherent mark of a Christian. It's certainly necessary, but it's not all you need. The question is, do you think and think and care and feel about people's uh, spiritual needs? Is that a concern for you? So... so I mean, for me, one of the big moments of my conversion where I knew something was starting to change, it was around my 16th birthday. I won't tell the whole story. I'll just say this. I was with someone I did not know otherwise, and in my natural flesh, I had a reason to be upset at this person. Okay, I won't go into the story, but in my natural flesh, I would have normally been furious at this person. I would have said something very sharp and cutting, because that's what I used to do. That was kind of my way of operating. I don't want to go back. So... At this moment, this is, right, this is as close to my conversion as I can find any moment in my life. I just turned 16, and I remember turning to this person, and for the first time in my life, consciously thinking, I want to show the love of Christ to this woman. That was the, fir- that was the first time I ever remember it coming out of my heart, not just like a Sunday school answer. Like, I remember no one knew what was going on. It was just a private moment, and I just said, I want to show this woman something of the love of Christ. And I responded with gentleness and kindness at a moment where my flesh wanted to say sharp and cutting things to her. And that, that was me concerned. Suddenly, I wanted to represent Jesus to someone else. And I had never wanted that from within in my whole life up till then. And then from that point on, it's been a struggle. But that's what the Lord has been, has been working in, in, in so many of us in this room, is that desire to, to show Christ to others. And it's amazing then how that influences how Paul prays or how we should pray. And for the spiritual things, when we love somebody, we want them to experience the best, and that is more fellowship with our Father. That is the best thing. I, I love that. Do, are we ready to, to jump in there already with uh, his prayer? What do we have in, in five or I, six I think or so. seven? Uh, or anything else on? So, some of these themes will repeat. Uh, yeah. Some of the same words will be used in the prayer. But Jerry, can you read for us 9 to 13, or 9 to 14? Yep. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you 
to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Yeah. Scott, right there, I would give my driver's license, which a lot of people want me to lose anyway, <laughs> to see what's on those white it's sheets. It's a mess right now. No, I want, this is what we, this is the moment we've been waiting for. Can oh, you so. let us, because I love the way you encourage us to pray, and I love the way you pray, both. And what do you see in here that is just so... It's Paul. Paul prays like this. We ought to. Yeah, I'll start. Well, I'll start. D.A. Carson, the one you, you, you sent to us, D.A. Carson talked about prayer. He said we need uh, good models to help us pray. And he talked about his father, which we've talked about him many times, a faithful, ordinary pastor. He said he never went a day. He doesn't remember a day where he didn't pray for 45 minutes. I mean, that's a, a staggering thing to say. Pray, his father prayed 45 minutes a day. So that man made an impact on him. He talked about Martin Lloyd-Jones. He knew the Lloyd-Jones family, and uh, it was Lloyd-Jones' oldest daughter came to him one day and just said, my father, which is Lloyd-Jones, wanted me to tell you that he prays for you every day. And Carson was just like, he's not even in the inner circle. He's not even in the outer circle. He's way out here in the periphery of this man's life. And he said, what must have his prayer life been like? I was thinking, what must Paul's prayer life have been like? I mean, look at verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. I mean, he doesn't even know them, like like we've said. And he immediately begins to pray for them. Verse 3, he says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. So there's, there's an element of his prayer is he's praying consistently for them and he prays with thanksgiving for them. And I'll just start with, with this is we should be, here's the question. Are we praying with thankfulness to God? I mean, that should be just natural part of almost all of our prayers. But then I would say, when we pray for other Christians, part of this church, are our prayers filled with thanksgiving for the individual Christians at our, our church? Paul is praying every time he prays for them, which is consistently and constantly, he's praying with thanksgiving and he's never met them. How much more should we be praying with thankfulness for people that we know that we rub shoulders with? And I don't want to embarrass anybody, but I'm going to mention some examples. There's just two examples. I'll mention five people. One, if you are in the Romans Sunday school, I'm not going to mention Jerry because I don't want him to hurt me afterwards, but I'll mention Josh and Grant. Okay, if you're in the Romans Sunday school, Josh and Grant, they're doing this for the first time. Josh Krause and Grant Crane, they're doing this for the first time. Really, they've gotten pushed out of their comfort zone a little bit, I think, <laughs> and uh, maybe a lot out of their comfort zone. And uh, they both have full-time jobs. Grant is, is married and has got a newborn baby. I mean, that's a hard thing to have and to do a prayer. But both these guys are studying faithfully with spare time in order to, out of love for God and love for the people of God, and they are using their gift to build up the body. If you're a part of that Sunday school, it should be easy to give thanks to God for those two brothers. Second example would be, we, we, we had Sunday school in here before we split the two Sunday schools. And every time that I was a part of it, there were three people they were consistently serving behind the scenes. And, and uh, I think Hannah Hughes called themselves the, the Sound Sisters, I think, if I'm correct. So Hannah and Jen and Mary Beth were serving. And I just noticed these three, they're serving every single week back there, uh, doing the sound, uh, doing a live stream, and then helping afterwards. And you just think, when you pray for them, you should be able to give thanks to God for them. And you can multiply that out by a hundred times. I mean, just we have to look at our church. Our church is so gifted, and so many people are using their gifts as good stewards of God's grace, and they are doing it out of love for God and love for the people of God, we should just be easily taking note. And every time we pray for people at church, just, we should start with thanksgiving. It just should naturally flow. I mean, that's, a, that's one big takeaway from, from the way Paul prays. Greg? Um, drawing on what, some of what you've already said, you know, sometimes we wonder, what should I pray for people? Because uh, we know we should pray, and we, we sit down to pray, and then it's like... <laughs> Um, bless them. <laughs> Help them. Have a great day. I mean, you know, I mean, I've struggled with that at times, right? So, one of the things I found helpful um, is actually just praying scripture. And it, it, what Paul does here is a perfect example of this. But you know, 
anywhere you're reading, you can find a way to turn that into prayer. And so, I mean, you think about, you know, what, what you want, think about the people you pray for the most. Okay, here's, here's a suggestion. Um, <clears throat> maybe over the next week, take Paul's prayer here in verses um, 9 through um, 11. Just 9 through 11, the things Paul says he's praying for the Colossians. Um, and, and just pray this for the people that, that you pray for the most. Um, and so let's just kind of walk through that because this is, this is huge. So when he says, we haven't ceased to pray for you, he says, what, what, have, what has he been praying? He says, first, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will, it's his will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, there's an out, outcome of that in verse 10, but I mean, just stop there for a second and say, okay, picture the people you want to pray for and say, Lord, so-and-so, fill them with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. You don't have to flesh that out. You don't have to like give an exposition of that in your prayer. See, I, I'm the type, I think, I pray this, I have to explain to God what I mean by what I'm saying, and God doesn't always need me to do that, and you don't have to feel the pressure to do that. Um, so just pray that for the people that you, you pray for the most. God, fill them with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Hopefully what, we, what we're about to say about some of this will, you know, in your mind will help you understand more what that, what's going on there. So you think about it, we, we want to know the will of God. I mean, it, it's one of the most common questions you're gonna come across and there's some good ways to answer how do I know God's will. There's some bad ways to answer how do I know God's will. Um, I, I will say this, we don't wanna base our understanding of God's will for us based on a feeling, Okay. Um, some of you just ate a lot of pizza and you might feel that when you wake up in the morning and you don't want to base your understanding of how God's leading you based on how you feel because of the pizza that you ate. Um, and it would say that somewhat tongue in cheek, but we, we are very prone to just be led by impulse. Um, I feel this way. I feel that way. It's like, you know, whichever way the wind's blowing, that's the way we go. And that must be how God's leading. And I've known some people like that. I mean, they are really fly by the seat of their pants. Um, and you can never count on people like that because, well, you know, I made a promise I was going to be here, but no, God led me somewhere else. And it's just constantly, you have no idea what's going on. Um, I don't think that's what Paul's talking about when he says being filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Um, when it comes to knowing the will of God, the, the way we get to know God's will is by knowing God's word. And what I mean by that is God is more concerned with the type of people that we're going to be and the basic Christian responsibilities that he's clearly laid out in scripture than he is us like figuring out some mysterious blueprint out there that, man, if I just figure that blueprint out, then I've got my life figured out. That's not how it is. God tells us who he wants us to be, the type of character, uh, type of people we need to be, the type of people we don't need to be. Um, I mean, you know, First Thessalonians, Paul even one says, Paul says, you know, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. So what is God's will for you? So you don't have to wonder, it's to be like Jesus, okay? And so if you're pursuing Christ-likeness in your life, you're in the will, you're doing the God's will. You're, you're, you're figuring out what his will is for you and you're pursuing that. There's a whole lot of other things we could say. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, the, a, a great short book. Many of you have probably read Kevin DeYoung's, one of his first books, Just Do Something. And then the subtitle, no one remembers. It's like how to, how to uh, 
I'm not even going to try. Basically, how to make decisions without parting clouds and liver quivers and all these different things and rolling dice and that kind of stuff. Mm. It, just do something. And it's a refreshing biblical take on this whole thing. I, I think we've gotten caught up where we think the will of God is figuring out who I'm supposed to date, what college I'm supposed to go to, what job I'm supposed to take, what I'm supposed to do. That's not, that, that, those are not the kinds of things that we're, we're trying to figure out in that sense. The, the will of God is his moral decreed will. In other words, the, the passage Greg just quoted, 1 Thessalonians 4, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual morality. Okay, so what's God's will? That you not indulge lustful thoughts. That's God's will for your life. God's will for your life, Romans chapter 12, we all know this verse, I appeal to you brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that's through Scripture that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. There, it's not trying to figure out, you know, which restaurant do I go to this afternoon? God, show me which one, otherwise I'll ruin your will for my life. That's not biblical thinking. The question is not which restaurant am I gonna go to, the question is, how am I going to behave when I get there? That's the question. It's not whether I go to this college. I'll tell my college, to, uh, my, my seniors at Westminster, they're about to pick their college. They're about to graduate. They're about to go somewhere. And I will sometimes say to them, I say, listen, you should care about where you go to college. You should think carefully about that decision. You should weigh it against competitors. And you should make the best decision you can with prayer and wisdom and insight from your parents and people who love you. But I said this, and this always kind of is interesting. You may pick the right college and completely ruin it when you get there. It's about who you're going to be when you get there, which is far more important to God than necessarily which school you choose to go to. Uh, you, you could be a nurse or a doctor. You could be a construction worker or the, or the person who picks up the trash. Whatever you end up doing, be a godly person as you do it. That's what the Lord is most concerned about. And so the will of God is your sanctification, that you act in holiness, not necessarily trying to find, a, like you said, a blueprint for your future. Yeah, be joyful, always pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Those sort of things. Scott, how about 10? To walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. So we had the knowledge of God's will, number one, wisdom and understanding. Number two, a life worthy of Christ. Number three, what's that look like? Yeah, I mean, I think big picture, he's praying for spiritual development in the, in the people. That's a big thing. So I think you start with thanksgiving for people, and then you want to pray spiritual. I mean, not, not wrong to pray for physical things, but I think the big thrust of our prayer should be praying for spiritual development. The people be growing, growing the knowledge of God. I think Carson said that's one of our greatest needs is to know God better, praying that they, they, they know. But then it's like this application. The knowledge doesn't stop there. It's so that they can live worthy, like you pleasing to God. And again, to quote Carson, Carson said he was a part of a church in uh, Canada, I think it was. And there was uh, uh, this deacon who was a faithful, godly man and had a, had a daughter, I guess she was older. And he said that this daughter of this deacon just revered uh, her father. And they, he said that he, she would say something about doing something and she said, no, 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 I could never do that because that would let my father down. Like, I don't want to do that. I would never do that because I want to honor my, my, honor my, my father. He revered her father. Well, I was thinking for us, how much more f for Jesus? We want to honor the Lord Jesus. We want to, to uh, live a life glorifying to him because he's saved us, he's redeemed us, he has uh, shed his blood for us. So we, we want to live a life pleasing to him. And I think uh, Jerry Bridges talks about the Hebrews 13 passage about working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. In Bridges, I think he would pray that every day. Like work in me that which is pleasing in your sight. What a great thing to pray and what a great thing to pray for others uh, that this knowledge would, would lead into lives that will be worthy and pleasing to God. I think it also... Um it's worth mentioning that how we live does matter. And the reason I say this is we are right to emphasize the grace of God and salvation, that all our righteousness before God by which we're accepted is in Christ, not in us. 
The danger we can run into, though, if we're not careful, is we take that to a place the Bible doesn't take it. And what I mean is, well, if all my righteousness is in Christ and all my attempts are just filthy rags, why bother trying to obey? And if we, we go there, we're going somewhere the Bible doesn't go. It got, we can actually walk in a way that's either worthy of God or unworthy of him. We can live a life that pleases God or a life that displeases him. Now, our salvation is not dependent on what we do. It's not dependent on our obedience. It's not dependent on our works. But when we're saved, when the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside of us, he starts to get to work. Um, and as we've said, you see the evidence of that in faith in Christ, love for the saints, uh, this hope that we have. Um, and as we grow in our understanding of God's will for us in the right way, what that does is it shapes how we live. It shapes the decisions we make. It shapes the path we take. It shapes everything we do. It shapes the way we speak, the way we treat other people. And so I just want to make sure we don't miss this, that God has given us the spirit. He's given us his word so that we can live in a way that he can look at us and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. I mean, that's not to, to, to a small effect. Like we should want to live our lives so that when our day comes to meet Jesus face to face, we know we're going to hear that. Again, we, we don't base that on, you know, God's acceptance based on our works. But we, if we know Jesus, then we will, like you were saying, we want to honor him. We want to please him. That's one of the desires the spirit uh, weaves into us. And at the end of our lives, we want to be able to say, I know I wasn't perfect and I screwed up and fell down a lot, but I did the very best I could to live in a way that was pleasing to the Lord. Um, and that's okay to talk that way as Christians. We don't need to be afraid of obedience and trying to live a righteous, holy life. That's a good thing and it's a good desire. It's a good pursuit. We just don't see it as the basis for our salvation. We see it as the response to our salvation. And if we keep that right, then we can truly strive for excellence in everything. Let me build off that point. Look back at verse 10. It says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. So just to see where Greg is getting straight from that verse. A manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Just to give, just to give a imperfect human illustration with my, with my children. Um, my children, I love absolutely. There, there is nothing my children could do to make me love them less. I love them unbelievably. It's, un, it's un, unreal how much you can care for your children. So my love for my children is unalterable. It is not, by God's grace, it is not going to change. That does not mean I cannot be pleased or displeased with things that they are doing. My love can be absolute and unconditional while at the same time I'm displeased with an act of disobedience that may even pr pr bring about my discipline. And my discipline is not motivated by anything other, I hope. I mean, I'm sinful, so I, I, I fail at times. Sometimes there's anger, okay? But ideally, my discipline is motivated by love. And so my love is not changing, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to be pleased or displeased. Those things can, co they can coexist together. God is, loves us and accepts us in Christ, and yet actions that we do can please or displease the Father. Yeah. Good. So number three in verse 10, he prays that we would live a life worthy of Christ. Number four is that we would please God. Number five also in verse 10 is that we would be fruitful lives, have a knowledge of God. Let's pray that for each other, that we would grow in our knowledge of him. Seven is to have strength in verse 11, and then endurance, and then patience. So those are nine things that we could pray. Two other prayers in Ephesians, right? One and three maybe. 
Philippians, so we, you don't have to just camp in Colossians 1 to pray for people. There's other great prayers, model prayers. This is great, though. He also prays four things that he's thankful for, 12 to 14. Um, Mark, you want to read those? Giving thanks, verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Yep, so that inheritance. Talk about those, Scott. Well, I think one, one guy said he, he, he goes to, uh, from praying to, to rehearsing the gospel. Uh, he, he rehearses the wonders of the gospel. Even the, the, just verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you. One commentator said, wonder of wonders, God has qualified you. Yes, you Gentiles. I mean, that's amazing. Who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Uh, I think Charles Spurgeon said there's a gold mine in these verses, and he said uh, the, the domain of darkness, or the King James Version, whatever that is, the domain of darkness, is, he said, is literally is something awful. And that's where we were. We were literally in something awful, and God has rescued us from that. And, and you, you just come back to, uh, we need to rehearse the gospel. We must rehearse the gospel. But I think there also ought to be this element of, of wonder at the gospel. There, we, we, all, we need to be shocked back up to the wonder of the gospel. I think it was Michael Horton who said he was doing his doctoral work on a, on a Puritan named Thomas Goodwin, and he said he had to study Thomas Goodwin with tissues. He said, because over and over, Thomas Goodwin would say, isn't it wonderful? Isn't it marvelous? He would say it over and over. He was shocking uh, Michael Horton awake to the wonders of the gospel, and he'd, he'd cry reading Thomas Goodwin. I just think we need, we need to rehearse, rehearse the gospel. We need the, the wonder of the gospel. And Paul certainly rehearses it right here. And we just need to soak there and just be reminded that this is the most extraordinary thing that's happened to us. We've literally been delivered from this horrible domain of darkness, transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. We have redemption, forgiveness of sins. I mean, what a, what a way Paul, Paul ends that portion right there. What a, it's just fantastic. And he qualified this for it. That's the great part. You know, I think about in Nebraska this time of year, there's the state track meet and these guys are running like crazy people trying to qualify for another race when they could run. I would think, well, let's not qualify for that. That's going to be tiring if you have to run again, but they're trying to qualify, but they're trying so hard, but that's not, we can't be qualified. We try and try and try and we're disqualified. He qualified us. It's his work that qualified us for this tremendous inheritance. I love the way it's written there. Uh, to, to give an illustration, um, imagine that there's a man living back in the time of kings and peasants and such things. There's, there's, a, there's a man who, let's say he's enslaved to some horribly cruel slave master who treats him horribly, whips him, beats him, mistreats him. Uh, and this man has been stuck under this dark slave master for, for decades. And let's say that there's a king who's a wonderful and good and gracious king, and he has a son who is wonderful, good, and gracious. The king's son comes and ransoms this man, frees this man from the kingdom of darkness, releases him from his captor, and now this man is now adopted into the, into the family of the king. He's adopted. Now, that's amazing. The next day, the former slave is walking down the road, and he sees his slave master out there on the road, and his slave master starts yelling at him, get back over to my land. Come back right now. What are you doing out here? And that man could begin in that moment to think, oh no, I got to go back. This guy owns me. This guy is my master. I've got to go. I'm his slave. But then he has to speak the gospel to himself. I'm no longer in that kingdom. I've been freed from that kingdom at the cost of the king's son's blood. I've been purchased. I've been adopted. I've been redeemed. I've been taken out of that kingdom. He is no, Satan is no longer my master. I've now been put into the kingdom of his dearly loved son at great cost to the king because he loves me. Now, I know I owe nothing to that former master anymore. 
I don't owe anything to my flesh. I don't owe owe anything to the world or to Satan. I owe everything to God in Christ. I I owe it all to Him. I have a new master, and and I have a new king who is sovereign over me. Good. Those words are great, aren't they? That He delivered us. He rescued us. Someone said that could be one of the best words to use for the gospel. We were rescued. And then there was a transferring from the kingdom, the domain of darkness, to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Boy, when we think about what we have to look forward to with our inheritance, let's not forget what we deserve. By grace, God has transferred us. And then finally, um, in verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He has freed us from this slavery to sin. Uh, We're going to be talking about that the next couple of weeks in Romans. We have been freed. We are no longer slaves to sin, but now we're, we're redeemed. Any final thoughts? I think it stresses the importance of keeping the, the heart of the gospel central. You know, in Christ, there is forgiveness of sins for anyone who will repent and believe. Um, that, that, we have to keep that um, at all costs. Because if we lose that, we lose the wonder of the gospel. Like everything we've been talking about, the wonder, the hope, the faith, the love, um, all of this goes away if our sins aren't forgiven. Because if our sins aren't forgiven, we're still in our sins and we cannot approach God. Um, And so all that God does for us, all the benefits that we enjoy um, as Christians, and and we could spend a lot of time, you know, enumerating what those are. It all comes back to this heart of the gospel that in Christ, he bore the penalty for our sin in our place. And when we trust him, our sin is counted on him and his righteousness is counted to us. If that doesn't happen, nothing else in the New Testament matters. Nothing else of heaven, any, any Christian, it doesn't matter if our sins aren't forgiven. And that's why I think you talk about being delivered and transferred, that all happens when our sins are forgiven. It can't happen any other way. If we're still in our sins, we cannot approach our holy God. But if our sins are forgiven, then all these other things are possible. And so we have to, to keep that central. And I'm thinking Paul might've been doing that on purpose. Uh, it, it always comes back to that. I mean, so many of the, the ethical exhortations, you know, forgive how? As Christ forgave you. Bear with one another. It's God, you know, it all comes back to that. And if, if we keep that central um, and we live in the wonder of that, we live in light of the cross, we live in light of the forgiveness of our sins, that fuels so much of the Christian life. It fuels, I say the whole Christian life, not just so much of it. Um, and, and it enables all the things that we want to do for Jesus that we struggle doing, go back to the cross, never get tired of the cross, live in light of the shadow of the cross and the forgiveness that you have. And, and that opens the door for everything else. Mark, you want to pray for us and then give us instructions on how we can go next about Yes, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for <clears throat> this book of the Bible, Colossians and I do pray that you would help the conversations that we'll have around tables in just a moment to be particularly just helpful and fruitful and edifying for all of us who are involved. Uh, God, thank you for the truths that we've just had a few moments to think about, and I pray that you'd be at work now in a great way uh, for our good and for your glory. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are about to take a uh, about a four-minute break, uh, maybe five-minute break. Uh, just so you know, uh, we will have… 
Papa Fred, Jerry, Greg, Scott, myself, Josh Krause, Zach Petty, and Ian Webster are going to be leading these groups. So they're going to make their way around to different tables. And we've got questions that will go with that in just a second. So let's take about a four-minute break, and then we'll come back. <laughs> 